Welcome to the 24th podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Wrestling with God, Part 1. My name is Bruce, in case you don't know me, you met Tyler just a few moments ago, and I want to give a quick shout out to our volunteers, the folks that helped us this morning, especially in setting up. Uh, as you see behind me, the city is doing, our, the Arts Council, as part of the city of Rosemont, is doing a play, so a little plug for their play coming up in the next couple of weeks, and uh, that gives us a little more to work around. So shout out to all those who were so patiently worked around things. I heard this morning that this was a bit of a distraction. So I will now remove this. I don't know why this is a distraction. I thought it looked rather nice on the mantle, uh, but apparently it's uh, too much. So I'm just gonna move it right back here, right around the corner. So there you go. Now you'll be thinking about that the rest of the time and not the not the sermon. Uh, we left the fire on. I don't know. Whoa, I'm caught on something here. I am. I really am caught on something. Okay. All right. Good. So we left the fire on, kind of warm things up. Hope you appreciate that. We'll just make the best of it. Um, but for all of you guys, seriously, that, that uh, either watch or attend and uh, every Sunday morning, it just voila, poof, out of the unknown out of the recesses of the storage closet comes church. Uh, it doesn't just poof. Uh, a, a number of people help every week. So thank you, all of you who help uh, and serve in that way every week. I really appreciate it. And we all appreciate it, right? Don't we? Yeah. All right, good. I, I thought you would do that. Okay, good. So this morning, the title of the message is Wrestling with God. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We took a little break last week out at Whitetail Woods, and which was an awesome experience out there. Hope you enjoyed that, and, and I think the streaming worked, so uh, possibly you watched from uh, online wherever you're at. But uh, this morning, we're back to Genesis, and we are in chapter 32 of that book. The title is Wrestling with God, uh, and I, I am quite certain as we begin this morning, if you have been a believer, a follower of Jesus, uh, even if you thought about doing that, uh, maybe you've been in the church for a while or been a part of a church, uh, but you've kind of, been, kind of been unclear what your status is really uh, uh, as a religious person, wherever you're at, whatever the background is, I'll bet you there's been a time that you've wrestled with God. Uh, the, you, at least your concept of God, who you think God is, and why is it that God, if he's God, right, why is it that he does the things that he does, or why is it that he doesn't do things that he could do if he were truly God? Uh, so I, I think this morning we can all join in in kind of a similar place, that we've all had moments, places in time, uh, maybe even right now, where you're struggling or wrestling with who God is and what's going on in your life around you. Uh, so this morning, I'm going to throw out an introductory thought. Uh, I, I try to do this in different ways to pull us into Genesis. It's such an ancient book. The people that we're reading about uh, happened thousands of years ago, so and uh, thousands of years before the time of Christ, and everything we read about in the New Covenant about Jesus and our relationship with Him in, in the New Testament. So it's important every once in a while to, to you know, remember the two connect. There is no disconnect. Some people artificially make a disconnect between Old and New Testament, uh, which is why I always refer to the Old Testament, the original Testament, because you read Old and you think, well, like your grandparents or something, they're out of date. Uh, but it's not. It really isn't out of date. It's most of the Bible. So we need to understand how it connects with the New Testament. So here's, uh, here's a verse from the New Testament. From the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, and it says this, For whatever was written in former days, think 
original Testament days was written for our, right now, our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul, speaking to new believers in Jesus, part of the new covenant, there is a reason for all of this literature, this rich, vast, deep experience that people had with God. There's a reason for that. What is it? He says, as we read this, we are instructed in what uh, is going on with our lives right now. And we can see that through their endurance, we can also have endurance. And also, the encouragement that comes through God's living Word. It's not a, a dead piece of paper that we have in front of us. There's something living and active that God wants to get a hold of us with as He uses His living and active Word. So there is encouragement as we are instructed, as we sit under Scripture. So as Paul says, the bottom line is we might have hope. We do not believe in vain. We have eyes that see this vast history now of how God has worked that informs us, but it doesn't just change our minds so that intellectually we're different people. It changes our hearts. God uses it to give us hope that is based not in just knowing more facts and details. It's hope because our lives are changed, because God lives, and He has a reason for what He's doing, and He speaks into that and through that. So all of that had so much to do with wrestling with God. And I thought that verse was hopefully helpful as we begin considering what does it really mean to wrestle with God and what's the point of that? So this passage this morning, this is a tough one, and there's a lot of tough ones in Genesis, honestly, but uh, this is one of those passages that uh, scholars, people from you know, ancient times, 2,000 years ago and whatever, uh, as long as this passage has been around, people have wrestled with the fact that Jacob wrestles with this man. And what in the world does that mean? So I'm not going to answer every question, and we don't have time for all that, but uh, I am going to give you the insight that I received from studying this past week and how his wrestling also informs our wrestling to bring about a greater hope in our lives. So the question that I have for you as we begin is, how do you find hope? Where do you find hope? And I'm not asking that, it's rhetorical, obviously, but uh, I'm not asking that for you to begin thinking about Sunday school answers. Uh, let's put those aside. I know what the pastor wants me to say, okay? Push that aside. Now, let's, let's think and, and interact in a real way, okay? Where do you actually find hope? I mean, for some of us, especially in our culture uh, and in suburban culture, it's in the ability to do more things. Because I can be hopeful in the fact that I can be busier and buy stuff because then I don't have to think about the, the things that are going wrong, right? Have you ever been there? It, this is a tough day. Well, at least I can go buy something and feel better for a while. That was in a movie. I can't remember the movie right now. I was thinking about this past week and I didn't, it doesn't matter. But, uh, the, movie, in the, case, the situation in the movie was, yeah, my life is horrible, and he uses a bunch of expletives, but at least I can go buy stuff and feel better. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, uh, it's, you know, funny, but it wasn't so funny because it's so true. We find hope in that. Uh, we sometimes disengage from the reality of life and job and the things that are going wrong or difficult with family so that we can think about other things just for a while and be hopeful in those. And the problem is obvious, right? You buy something, it gets old, it falls apart, and then you have to buy something else. And the credit cards eventually run out. So buying stuff uh, is a quick fix that is uh, limited, right? And you think about all the other things that we sometimes go to to find hope in, they are limited as well. So we turn to Genesis 32, to discover what this wrestling does in moving not just Jacob, but us towards hope that does not disappoint, that doesn't fall apart, that doesn't break, that doesn't rust, uh, that doesn't wind up in a landfill, uh, and so forth. It doesn't have a limitation built in, but it, it uh, goes beyond all those other things that we play with. That's 
really what we need and what we want this morning. So bringing, to bring us into the context where we left off two weeks ago, Jacob and his family, they've left Laban. They're on the road again. They're heading back in a very long, dangerous journey back to the land of Jacob's fathers down in the southern part of Canaan. They've got a long ways to go. And to get there, there is this realization that Jacob has that he's got to go by the land of his brother, and that is Esau. And the, basically the last time we, we were thinking about Esau even is back to chapter 27 when Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright, if you remember that. And what was Esau's response? Oh, that's okay, we'll let it slide. Not quite exactly, right? Esau was planning on killing his brother, and then he goes on to begin his own life and his own family. So the last time we inter interacted with these two guys was Esau wanted blood, and he was not going to be satisfied until he killed his brother. So this is years later, right? We've, we've progressed three to five chapters, uh, but we've progressed many years down the road. In fact, Jacob is probably, and Esau are in their 90s at this point. They're old men. So where is the grudge now? And Jacob, to his credit, doesn't try to avoid his brother. This chapter leads us into a situation where Jacob knows he's got to confront his brother, even though his brother wants to hate him or kill him. And, uh, and who knows what he's going to do at this point after so many years. So Jacob prepares for Esau and this unknown whatever it lies before him. And it's interesting that the narrator leads us into the darkness. That all this, the final preparation, what Jacob does with his family leading into the new day is happening at the end of the day. And it's, it's kind of good movie stuff, actually. The setting is darkness is falling. And it's not just the sun's going down, but the dark night of the soul kind of stuff is happening. What lies before or out there uh, in the next day in Jacob's life and in the life of his family. So how does he hope? Let's begin to find some answers with that question. And the first one is hope is found, at least in Jacob's life, through prayer. Now, we'll just stop there for a second, okay, as we begin to think about that, because that's kind of a Sunday school answer, right? Uh, if, if you had to rate your prayer life, right now, okay? If you had to give it a letter grade, and it's all on you, rhetorical, not asking for hands or anything, but I actually want you to think about it. If you could rate, grade your prayer life, would you give yourself an A? Is prayer an actual active part of your life that you look forward to, that kind of gives you energy and joy, uh, do you look forward to spending time talking with Christ and interacting with Him? Do you even see opportunities in Scripture that kind of lead you towards more prayer? Uh, I mean, that'd be an awesome experience, right? Sounds good. Uh, or are you somewhere B or C minus or less than that? As I look back in the people that I've known uh, in different churches, different places over the years, the people that I've known that really had active prayer lives that that truly seemed to just love it, were the older folks. And not, not every old person prayed, uh, but the people who did pray, that as I interacted with them, I'd give them an A or an A+, plus, whatever that means, uh, were older folks that had learned some things about prayer throughout their lives. They didn't just arrive one morning like, I feel guilty about praying, I should pray more, so I'll, you know, I'm going to do it out of this kind of a legalistic response, this knee-jerk reaction. They weren't like that, but there was something deep and rich about the way that they prayed, about the way that they longed to pray. They pursued opportunities to be praying. And as I watched them and as I heard them pray, pray even as a, a young guy, there was something in me that said, I want that. You know, I... I want that richness and deep value. Man, I'd love hearing them pray. Maybe you've heard people pray like that, where you're like, oh, I, I wish I had their prayer life. That's where I want us to go this morning when it comes to pray, to talk, praying, to talk about, well, first of all, look at what Jacob does and have some meaningful interaction with prayer. So this isn't a guilt trip, okay? You should pray more 
and be a better person. End of sermon. No, we're not, we're not doing that. What I do want you to do is have a longing for something that you just don't have yet. And that is meaningful and deep and filling kind of prayer and interaction with God. So let's read the passage here. Jacob is having this dark, beginning this dark night of the soul, okay? Uh, what is going to happen? Is Esau going to come and kill him and kill his family? Uh, what in the world is right around the corner? He is scared and literally scared to death. So he prays. Let's look at how he prays. Genesis 32, beginning of verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Messengers, so just prior to this prayer, the messengers that Jacob sent out to find Esau, they've come back. They've given him the full report of Esau. Esau has 400 men, and not just, you know, the rancher types or whatever, or little kids. The idea from Scripture is 400 guys ready to fight. So it's not just Esau he's fearing. He's basically got his own army that could wipe out Jacob and everyone. That's why he fears. That is before him. And certainly, if you're in a point where you're afraid to be cut down and murdered, it affects your prayer life right? So uh, that, that probably is changing a little bit. But what we also see is the growth of his prayer life, okay? So some scholars, you know, kind of, they take cheap shots at Jacob at this point. Of course, he's praying like that. He's afraid for his life. Well, maybe that's part of it, but that's part of reality. But I also think there's more going on to his prayer life because of where he's been, and the things that he's learned. So look at how he prays. How does he pray? Well, first of all, there's a humble recognition of who he is uh, before God. He's got years to look back of his growing, changing, gradual, changing relationship with God, and he freely, readily admits, I had nothing when this started, when my story started, and now look at these, these two camps, whatever. Uh, that is part of the context. He divides his group, his people into camps. And he's thinking about how many people, all the blessings of livestock, the things that he realizes, none of that was capable. He, he was not capable of creating his life, what he has. It's God. So he begins with this humble recognition. Everything I have, Lord, is from you. And I readily, willingly admit that before you. Also, he confesses. Verse 10, he says, I am not worthy. And if there's anything going on in his heart, I think we have a clue to it right there. He knows he's been the cheater and a deceiver and a manipulator. He is aware of who he is. And all of that background, as he approaches the Lord, You've given me everything, and I am not worthy of any of it. That's the kind of heart reaction that the Lord honors. And I believe he's honoring it in Jacob's life right now. An honest and open expression from his heart, realizing who he is in the face, in the presence of the Lord God. But it doesn't end there, because he continues by trusting in God. He, he repeats, he, he basically copy and paste right into this prayer, uh, this prayer that he offers. He realizes when verse 12 comes around, but you said this, I will do you good. I'll make your offspring in the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. That promise that his fathers received from God is also good with him. And God has made sure that he heard that. So it's not just, he's not putting God to the test when he prays that. You said do this, now do it now. It's not, I don't 
think there's that attitude behind it because that attitude isn't in the prayer. It is simply repeating what God has said and he is choosing as he speaks with God to remember and trust. And that's huge. That's the game changer, especially looking at what lies before him, right? 400 men, they're waiting possibly to cut him into pieces. Yet, God, you promised something that is entirely different. And as I look at all you've done and all you've blessed, and I know I'm not worthy of any of it. I didn't earn any of it. I know who I am, yet God, you did this. So in light of that history, God, that we have, I'm going to choose to trust that this thing you said you'd do, that you're actually going to do. And I have no idea of how in the world you could do it. Yet still, I'm going to choose to trust that what you said is going to come about. One of the scholars I read this past week and I was studying, I think hit the nail on the head when he said this, when Jacob prays, he is seeing himself and his problem in relation to the revealed purpose of God. Did you hear that? Let me read it one more time. When Jacob prays, he is seeing himself and his problem in relation to the revealed purpose of God. God, you said you would do this. I don't get how you could do it. I don't have to know how you're going to do it. I'm just going to trust that you're going to do it. You have revealed your plan and your purpose enough so that I know that I'm a part of it. And the rest is up to you, Lord. I'm going to choose to trust. No one, neither Jacob or any of us, starts off in our relationship with God praying like that. Now, maybe somebody does. Most of us, okay? Most of us don't have that level of trust. That level of trust and faith, I believe, is grown over time. It's affected in us when we see it in other people, which is why the family, one of the many reasons, the family of God is so critically important. Like I said earlier, when I was around those older saints that prayed like, oh, I heard them pray and I want that. There's a depth to that. If we didn't have the family of God, I would have never heard and never understood how somebody could trust in God like that. How somebody could have that kind of relationship with God. So I want that. That's why we need each other. So we can hear each other pray. And, and I can learn from many of you and how you've learned to trust and how your relationship with God is being built and growing deep through prayer, that I can hear that, be around that, and go, yeah, I want more of that too. We learn that. We grow in that. That's why uh, what I'm about to say next is so critically important to our faith as we grow. And this guy is going to help us understand that. Now, I don't know if Winston Churchill was a good prayer. I know he drank a lot, which is not the same thing. But in 1940, shortly after Winston Churchill became prime minister, things were looking pretty dark for England. If you know any of that history at all, when he came uh, to his position, there were many political leaders in England that wanted to just go to Hitler and work out a deal because he's going to crush us. Just like they're doing to France, they're going to do the same thing to us and we are going to be taken out. So there are many people saying, you can't fight Hitler. We've got to just give in and sue for peace. And Churchill said no. And there were dark days. You know anything about London in 1940, the Blitzkrieg? I mean, uh, Hitler was bombing them to bits. And it looked like for a long time, for months, that Churchill made the wrong decision. And they were going to pay a much worse price. But the RAF stepped up, and England survived the bombing, and Hitler, in all his cockiness and ego, did not win that battle. So what I found inter an interesting, I think almost life-changing, one of the uh, speeches that Churchill gave in 1940 to a school of boys uh, in the midst of that darkness uh, I don't have that, but I have an excerpt from the next speech he gave to the same group of boys in 1941. 
So in 1940 is, yep, it's dark. Hold, hang on, whatever, yeah. And then 1941, the story looked different. And he goes back to that school. And here's just a little bit of the speech that maybe you've heard of uh, at some point in your life. He said this to the boys, you cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are. But for everyone, surely, from this period of 10 months, since the last time he spoke to them, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. Can you hear his voice? In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. If there's any lesson in prayer, it's, Churchill did it right there. Things seem far worse than they actually are. And in our faith response to God, we can pray in that hopefulness, remembering that we should not give in, even if the answer we want does not come instantly. If God's plan requires more waiting and more trusting and more faith, we are with God. So we have hope and we have faith that does not disappoint. Now, Jesus teaches a lot about prayer and I don't think I've got the slide in. No, so I'm going to I'm going to turn real quick. If you have a Bible, uh, Luke chapter 18, it's one of those curious little parables. It's called the the parable of the persistent widow, okay? Maybe you've heard of this one before. I'll read it real quick here. It's only eight verses, but it does have something to teach us about prayer that fits exactly with where Jacob is and even what Churchill was talking about. Uh, The story, the parable goes like this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not give in, or as Jesus says, not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Think of the number of people, of believers, and I bet you're part of them, who over this past year, two years especially, have been praying for justice. I know I have in the light of numerous things that have been going on all around us in our culture, even here in the Twin Cities. Where, God, is your justice? What is Jesus saying? Is he saying it's going to come instantly? He uses the word speedily, right? So we've got to remember how he ends the parable. How does he end it? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's not a question of how quickly the answer comes in our understanding of quick or timing. God says through Jesus, through this parable, that the answer is coming. He will bring justice. But for now, in this time, in this day and age, are you responding in faith? Are you saying, yep, I'm going to keep praying and I'm not going to give in to this idea that if he doesn't answer me right now, he must not be listening. If I don't get what I want now, then he's not real. If I don't get what I want, then prayer is pointless, and I'm going to move on and do something else. No, that is not the answer. He is looking to build whatever the time is we don't know. That's why faith is essential, to build in his followers Faith that continues to not give in, to continue to seek him, to continue to ask. In this case for justice, whatever it is, we don't give in. We continue to grow in belief. What happens as we build 
faith, we discover more about God. If you don't give in, if you keep praying, you learn that prayer isn't so much about me and what I want right now. There is a bigger picture to prayer and that conversation by faith with God. We begin to see what God has in store, which means this, when you continue to pray and you don't give in, you receive what it is that you actually needed, not what you wanted at the time. You catch that? There's a difference. Usually there's a profound difference. So the point isn't to stop praying. The point is to keep praying and keep seeking with the realization that I'm going to trust there's something bigger going on, and God, you're going to do it. So I'm going to trust you in your timing. And in that process, faith increases. That's what I picked up from those old saints as they prayed. That's the direction I want to go in. That's the direction I think that Jacob is going in. So we hope not only through prayer, but we also hope in prevailing. So there's a backstory to this uh, in the chapter. We're not going to take the time to read the whole story, but uh, just to fill you in, Jacob is doing what the author uh, calls appeasing. He's doing things, verse 20, to try to set things up so that Esau, who is probably terribly angry with him, will be appeased. He's going to give him all this livestock, all of these gifts. He's going to send all that stuff ahead of time in waves. I mean, he's going all out here. Uh, Jacob wants the best possible reaction from Esau. So he's going to get wave after wave of a, a ridiculous, really, amount uh, of extravagant gifting going on in hopes that Esau won't want to kill him anymore. Then he sends his family to a safe place, and then, and then after Jacob has prayed, he is alone with his thoughts. He gets to go to bed or lay down or whatever, and all of this is lying before him. And what does he think about? After he's prayed, after he's done all, these, all this preparation, what, what does he do as he reviews his life, which may be coming to an end at this point? I've always been the cheater. I've always been the deceiver, right? I've always manipulated situations to try to get out um, what I can for my benefit from my birth to this point in my life. If he reviewed those situations, those scenarios, he would see numerous things that we've already looked at as we've worked through the last few chapters. What kind of man really am I? Jacob's got to be thinking there in the darkness, and will I ever get back? Jacob, uh, we read at one point, is alone. His family has left him. But verse 24, we discover he's really not alone. And this begins this this weird interaction. Uh, And the passage... Uh, is, is so sudden, it's so abrupt what happens here. He does all that preparation. He sends his family away. Verse 22, that same night he arose uh, and he sent his family away. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and suddenly a man shows up to wrestle him. And it's almost comedic, right? I mean, all this other stuff going on and it's dark and a guy's wrestling with him, okay? So where does this come from? And that kind of leads to some of the, the confusion around this passage. So let's, let's read that. Verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he, the man, said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I'd want to know. Anyway, and, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Peniel, excuse me, saying, for I have seen God face to face, 
and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, which it's the same name, just different, uh, different, same name, different spelling, limping because of his hip. Jacob, his whole life, he has trusted in his own ability to try to best others. And now he is face to face with his own inability to cope what has him fearing more than it probably at any point in his life. So suddenly this wrestling match appears out of the dark with his man. So everybody argues, who is the man, right? Uh, and, and he doesn't identify himself. I believe there's a reason for that, and we'll get back to that. Uh, so uh, he's either a random guy, which I don't think that's the case, or he's an angel, or he's Jesus himself. I tend to believe he's Jesus. There's lots of disagreement with that. But I, here's the ironic part. Even though uh, this man, who I think is Jesus, shows up and begins wrestling him, Jacob's been wrestling with God his whole life. And that, that's the reason why this point in chapter 32 is the climax to the story. If he's in his 90s, he's had a whole lot of life to wrestle with God. Just think of that. If you had, if you had issues with God, how he does things in your life at this point, yeah, yeah, that's legit. He's over 90 and he's still wrestling. And then that spiritual wrestling becomes an actual physical wrestling match with God. And that's Jacob's story right now. So if there's ever been an appropriate time to say God showed up, you hear people say that, you know, this is a God moment. It's a God thing. God showed up. He actually did. And he's actually wrestling with Jacob down there in the dirt. And the interest, there's many interesting things about this little uh, um, story. Jacob is wrestling, and even Jacob seems to be prevailing. And he's not going to let go until he gets a blessing. So that, what that doesn't mean is that Jacob, being a man, is somehow physically stronger. And that's where we kind of derail the story. Because it sounds like it's saying that, right? That he's actually beating God or an angel, whatever you believe. So that he's, you know, he's actually somehow physically stronger. That we don't go there, we shouldn't go there with the story and what's happening. So Jacob didn't prevail because he was physically stronger. There is something else in another way that Jacob is actually prevailing. So the man, who I think is Jesus, he has the ability to beat him physically, and that's made clear with touching the hip. All he does, and even the language in the ancient Hebrew is just a gentle, slight touch. That's the idea there. He just barely, boop, on the hip, and he's limping, okay? So it's not about physicality here. That's, that's not the point. He barely touches him, and he goes away limping, okay? So there's got to be some other reason in the whole wrestling match. So the question is, who or what is Jacob prevailing against? If it's not the physical thing, then there's something else going on, which I believe there is in his heart, in his life, that he's holding, that he has been holding on to, and he's coming to the turning point in his wrestling with God. That he's holding on not just to the past, but he's holding on to God himself. And he says, I'm not going to let you go. That's the prevailing part of the story. I'm going to hold on to you because I know there's a blessing that only you can give. And everything I've done in my life has led me to a dead end. And now I know it's you, God. That's where I think this story takes us. I'm not going to go until I receive the blessing that I could not provide for myself. So he gets it. The blessing happens. He says, my name is Jacob. And, and the man, God, says, no longer is your name Jacob. I'm going to give you a new name, Israel. What does Israel mean? He strives with God, which really sets the stage for the whole history of the nation of Israel. And it begins right here in this wrestling match in the dirt in 
the dark. But there is a good dimension. It's kind of a, yeah, you lost, but yeah, you won at the same time. Because, yep, you're going to strive with God, but this is going somewhere. The Lord is going to have his way with Jacob slash Israel, not just there in the dirt, but for the rest of his life and for the rest of his family's life and for the rest of history, even beyond where we are at today. Those blessings that the Lord said are, yep, are yours, they're yours forever, through your family, for Israel. You've strived with God and you've prevailed because you received the blessing and God is for you and not against you. That's what I think is going on. So why cripple him? Why send him away limping? He doesn't go away complaining about the limp. Did you, know, you notice that in the past? That's probably something I would do. That hurt. Why did, knock it off. Why did you do that? You know, and for the next day or two. Oh, he's not doing that. The, what lingers in his thinking, Jacob, Israel's thinking, is what? What he names that place. Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet I've striven with him, I'm striving with him, and yet what? I've been delivered. What sticks with him, yep, there's a, there's a pain, there's an ache, and we don't know if it goes away eventually or if it's stuck with him the rest of his life. At least I don't think that's in Genesis. I don't think it clues us in. That doesn't really matter either. But at least for the time being, he's got a reminder that it's, it can't be him, that he's not strong enough, that his prevailing isn't about his own strength, right? And all these other schemes and all these things he did, they all come up short. Ah, I remember God. Ah, God's doing something that I can't. Ah, it's got to be what God has provided. And I'm not complaining about it because I've seen God and I'm still alive. Man, God is good. He has delivered. He has enabled me to stay alive through all of this. God be praised. That's the end result of this wrestling match. Now, somebody else who put it in a, in a much better way is J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Now, by the way, if you haven't read Knowing God, you should. A classic for all time. Packer says this, the nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust, that he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all this painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace to him, assuring him that he need not fear about Esau anymore. He put it so beautifully, right? That's what's going on here. The prevailing is because of God and through God and in God, and he has a future now because of all that God... The, the story of wrestling isn't about Jacob. That's where people get so derailed. It has to be something about Jacob and you know, wrestling in the dirt. It's all about God and what God has done. And he's seen the face of God, and yet he lives. There is hope in prevailing. Never, just we, similar to what we talked about earlier, to never give in, to never give up on prayer. The hope in prevailing is simply this. Never let go. There are plenty of things that challenge us every day. Reasons to distrust God instead of distrusting ourselves. That I must be right in this, right? And God, the problem must be God's because he didn't give me what I want or he made life difficult or I got a pain in my hip. All, all sorts of reasons we could point at God, and we do it all the time. But this passage says you need to point at yourself, that there is something else going on that God is at work in. Don't give up. Hold on to God. There are plenty of questions even today, uh, the messages we get from society all around us that God isn't real and science is. Look at all the banners that are out in, in lawns everywhere in our neighborhoods, right? All these reasons to be in questioning God. Those who have growing faith say, yep, it's tough, and sometimes it hurts, 
but God, I'm going to hold on to you. And there's hope in that kind of prevailing response. Where do we see this? In a similar fashion, Paul does it. Paul goes through it. If you have your Bible, again, turn to, this time to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I think is a very similar thing that's going on in Paul's life. Paul, uh, the context here is that uh, before verse 7, there's things that he could boast in. There's things that God has done through the Holy Spirit. Uh, things that he's seen have been revealed to him. He could spend the rest of his life boasting about how great he is because God's done these things to him. No. In fact, it's quite the opposite. During that time, God gave him a thorn. Just like we don't know the man's name, we don't know what the thorn is either. And there's a kind of a beauty in that, in the, in the mystery of the way Scripture speaks. By not telling us everything, all of this applies to us. Okay? If we knew what the thorn was, we could, we could read that and say, well, it's not my thorn. It's not my problem. Yeah, it's rotten for you, but... No, we don't, everybody's got a thorn somewhere. So we can relate instantly, immediately to what Paul is saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And this is where we get to that never give in and never let go stuff. Because we see this modeled here in what Paul does. But he said to me what? In all that praying, and all that holding on, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you just instantly understand that and know that? Nope. You learn that by never giving in by refusing to believe the other messages around you, by continuing to return in faith that God has what I can't produce on my own. So how does Paul respond to the grace in weakness? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, not in the revelations, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's where Paul winds up in what he has learned. Through the pain of the thorn, God has a plan to not just deliver him in the immediate aspect or, or, or situation he's in, God is up to something greater. And in his weaknesses, he can glory that Jesus has done this and through the hardships and through the persecutions and calamities. None of that is easy. Just point at any of the hardships you've been through. Did you ask for that? No. You'd be nuts to ask for that. Paul didn't ask for that. But through that, Jesus has something greater. Not just for you, but every person that comes in contact with you as they hear you pray, as they see your priorities play out in your life, as they see you interacting and responding to the hardships in your weakness, people see there's something different about that woman. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's an attraction there. I don't know what it is about that guy, but there's something different about them. And it is the glory of God, visible in a life that's being changed by faith and trust in the impossible. It, it, with God is possible. That's holding on when everybody else says, just let go. God isn't there. Science, whatever, you name your thing, it's better. There is reason to hope that God is still on the throne, and that in that persevering, God will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come this morning, not just to, to worship songs as we typically do, but as we come to the cup and to the bread, 
I pray, Lord, that your presence would be felt in our minds and our hearts, that we could rejoice knowing that the cross is effective. The bloodshed for us regenerates and renews and gives me all the hope needed through every thorn. Jesus, be here and affect our minds right now so that we will respond in worship and praise, considering the blood that was poured, the body that was broken. Lord, do a new thing, we pray, in our, in our returning. Give us a strength, Lord, to hope in you and to cling to you when no one else does. To the glory of the Father and to the work of the kingdom that is before us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you took a moment to grab a cup on your way in. If you didn't, there are more in the back. And if you're at home or wherever you're at watching or streaming, uh, I would encourage you to join with us to grab something to, to drink and a little piece of bread, whatever it is that you've got close by, to eat and join in at this time. Paul tells us, I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as, as we typically do. He tells us how we should come to this table, to the cup and that piece of bread. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, I, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You don't have to be a member of this church or of any church uh, in order to take part in this communion time. We just ask that you uh, approach it as one who knows that you are a believer, that you've trusted in Christ. That could be years ago. That could be moments ago. It's all good before the cross because we remember that he alone is worthy and we are not. So take this time as we sing to take the cup and the piece of bread and to drink that juice and let's continue to worship together.